absolute legend. Welcome back to A Need to Read. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm going to say this probably for the next six or seven episodes, but it's very good to be back and very good to be uploading. Hopefully, you're enjoying the episodes. And if you are, please make sure to share them with people that you care about who could probably benefit from listening to this podcast. But that's all I'll ask of you. Before we get into this episode, just a quick word from the sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm super proud that they are because BetterHelp provide therapy to millions of people all over the world. And therapy, if you're into personal development and you're not going to therapy, you're probably missing a trick a little bit. There are so many different ways in which your mind can play tricks on you and your mind can mislead you and little biases in your head can lead you to think things that aren't true. Having a therapist or a trained counsellor direct your thinking with questions and look objectively at your life is super, super important when it comes to mastering your mind, which I guess we're all trying to do in some way. And as a listener to A Need to Read, if you want to get access to your very own counsellor, get matched them within 48 hours of doing the questionnaire on their website, all you have to do is head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. And as a bonus, you get 10% off your first month. But with that, out of the way, let's get in to the podcast. Well, 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. It's a bit of a clickbaity title, if I'm honest. And I'm glad it was because that's what drew my attention to the book. Because being mentally strong is something that I strive for. As someone with a propensity to feel a little bit depressed and to be a little bit anxious aiming for some form of mental resilience is quite important for me and it's something that I've had to implement into my day-to-day life maybe over the last two, two and a half years. And I think the book is very useful, hence why I'm doing a podcast episode on it. It is written by a woman called Amy Marin, who is a therapist, and it was inspired by a blog post that she did um, that went viral, as is the case with quite a few books um, that I've read recently. Basically because her mum died, which is really sad, and she died pretty suddenly from a brain aneurysm, which I guess is a reminder of our mortality. We can't be too sure that people we love are going to stick around for long. Sorry if that's a bit of a depressing thought, but it is very true. Um, But Amy, the author of this book, has done a brilliant job of creating something beautiful out of some sort form of hardship, which is admirable. And one of the things that is at the start of the book that I put on Instagram the other day, and I said, basically, there is no such thing as healed o'clock. Because you know people say that time heals all wounds? Well, that's basically bollocks, because time doesn't actually heal anything. It's how we deal with that time that determines the speed at which we heal. And that stuck with me. And I put it on Instagram, and I put, there's no such thing as healed o'clock. Because there isn't. People think that they can just wait a certain amount of time, and the grief the heartache, the depression, the anxiety is just going to magically disappear. But it's not. Unfortunately, and I've said this before, no one's more annoyed than this than me. You just have to do some work sometimes. And while most of the self-help industry does focus on things that you can implement into your life, this book focuses on things that you can take out. And she says in the book that good habits are important, but it's often our bad habits that prevent us from reaching our full potential. 
You can have all the good habits in the world, but if you keep doing the bad habits alongside the good ones, you're going to struggle to reach your goals, which of course sucks because we all want to reach our goals. It makes us feel good. It brings a general sense of fulfillment into our lives. And you mean you get to tell people that you've achieved things, which is a lovely sort of thing to do. So without further ado, I'm going to go through all of the 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. But just to define what mentally strong means, it's essentially your ability to regulate your emotions and manage your thoughts and behave in a generally positive manner despite your circumstance. I think that key phrase at the end, the despite your circumstance, that of course does invite the topic of privilege of how the situations that I face will never be as tough as some other people around the world. Um, so just to acknowledge that, that being mentally strong is definitely going to be harder for you under certain circumstances. But the concept is the same, is that it will be a wholly positive endeavour should you aim at mental strength and keep practising and pointing yourself in that direction. But I can almost hear you thinking, what is the first of the 13 things that mentally strong people don't do? The first is they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. And essentially this whole chapter is about exchanging self-pity for gratitude, which is a wholly pretty good idea. Somewhat difficult in many circumstances. It is quite good to have a pity party every now and then. Or it kind of makes you feel good, but it doesn't really serve a purpose. So getting rid of that self-pitying of, oh, why me? Why did this happen? Think about it. Why not me? Why shouldn't you have something bad happen to you? Because I'm pretty sure things are randomly allocated. There's no good people getting good things and, and bad people getting bad things in life. It just doesn't work that way. So instead of sitting there when something bad goes wrong, oh, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why not you? That is the thing to think. Very difficult to think, granted, but a good idea to do so. In terms of gratitude, there was a study conducted in 2003 that found people who practice gratitude on a daily basis, by the way, and if you're not practicing gratitude on a daily basis, just try writing it down in the morning. It can be on the notes in your phone or it can be in a diary or a journal or whatever you want. Just write down three things that you're grateful for, three things that are adding value to your life, even if they're a hardship, because you'll be able to find the good in everything if you kind of look hard enough, which is a incredibly arsy and knobby thing to say but unfortunately it's, it is true I mean fortunately it is true people who practice gratitude every day have better immune systems which is quite interesting experience more happiness and joy and have better social lives so if something bad does happen to you try and be grateful for it and it'll look good for the rest of your life because you'll have more friends apparently and better immune systems and who doesn't want both of those things the main bit of advice from that chapter, though, was if something bad happens, just try and be rational as much as you can. Think of advice that you'd give to a friend in your situation and don't exaggerate because our minds are excellent storytellers. And if you give yourself a chance to exaggerate something or to make the story a little bit more interesting, then you're probably going to do so. So mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. Number two, they don't give away their power this chapter I don't want to spend too much time on, but essentially it is remembering that no one is in charge of your soul, life but you, right? Saying no to people is super important, 
and choosing to forgive people that have done you wrong is a wholly good idea. Because otherwise, you know, they say, don't be bitter, be better. I think that's quite true. All these cliches, I love them. Give me more cliches because they do tend to be true. Um, but yeah, they don't give away their power. So if you want to read the book, you can you can read that chapter in a little bit more depth. Something quite important is that they don't shy away from change. And change can just bring up emotions in you that aren't that comfortable. Uncertainty kind of breeds anxiety and just being unsure generally forces people to stay within their comfort zone. You know, you see those quotes on Instagram of people who are like, hey guys, nothing good ever happened inside your comfort zone. It's like, yeah, well, sometimes good did happen inside the comfort zone. Sometimes you just get to chill out and it's quite nice to rest. But every now and then, break free of it. She says there's five stages of change, which is the pre-contemplation stage. Number one is when you're unaware and you don't really know that you need to change. That's probably when you're mostly in your comfort zone. There's a contemplation stage, which is when you're kind of aware that you need to change. Preparations when you start making plans. I think a lot of people spend way too much time in the preparation stage when it comes to making behaviour change. Um, you can over-prepare. I'm a serial under-preparer and that's not very good either, but just try and find a balance when it comes to that. Number four, taking action. And number five, maintenance. Maintenance is obviously how you can keep it up and action is just doing it. I think that is where people fall short is just getting up and doing something. It's super important. If you have an idea, just just run with it. Brains are for having ideas, right? They're not for holding ideas. They're not like, it's not a storage system, I believe. I think you should be having ideas and acting on them quite quickly as long as you're not going to like hurt anyone in the process. There's a lot of things that people who maybe are not mentally strong do. See what I did there? Just flipped around the title. And one of them is they fear being outgrown by people. So say you were with a partner 10 years ago and you're with them today and you're like, oh my God, they have changed. They're just not the same person that I was with 10 years ago. So for the most part, that's probably true because people do change as time goes on. And if you aren't able to change yourself, if you're stuck within your ways, then people are just going to go outgrow you, outgrow you. And it's just me on, like life is going to change, whether you want it to or not. And it's more about running towards that than it is about running away from it. And it breeds the topic of psychological flexibility, which is essentially your ability to remain agile when it comes to things in your life. Changing, going wrong, getting even getting better. Sometimes people struggle when their life's going well because they're just not used to it. But having psychological flexibility and being able to handle whatever life throws at you, good or bad, is a very good thing to be practicing. And the key word is practice there. All of this stuff takes practice. You're not just going to be good at it straight away. Number four, they don't focus on what they can't control. I've spoken about this before in a podcast about the locus of control. Um, the locus of control is essentially if you believe you're responsible for your life or not. So people with a high internal locus control believe that they're mostly responsible for how their lives turn out. And people with external believe that the path is being laid for them by others. If you think your life is being laid out for you by others, then you're probably not going to have a good time. 
I know that there's this whole thing on Instagram. I'm like, oh my God, guys, I create my own reality. I love my own reality. I create it. I've manifested this life. But in essence, you do get to kind of choose where you go in your life and what you do for the most part. Maybe that speaks to my privilege there that I have that, but most people listening to this podcast also will because you've got a mobile phone, you probably live in the West and loads of other things of tick boxes that you tick. I've digressed there. Isn't it so strange that every now and then I'll say something and I have to try and cover my arse just to hope that someone doesn't send me a shitty message even though no one ever does. Just goes to show the life of an anxious brain. It's not that great. Um, But yeah, when it comes to focusing on what you can control, obviously, things you can't control, the weather, instead of wasting your time focusing on whether there's going to be a storm or not, just try and prepare for one. I've butchered that quote. But if you want to read it properly, read it in the book. Number five, they don't worry about pleasing everyone. People-pleasing sucks. I do it often. I sometimes find myself saying at the end of emails, oh, no worries if not, which is a classic sign-off from someone who's a people-pleaser. But Lao Tzu, if you're familiar with the name, he's an ancient Chinese philosopher. And he says, if you care about what other people think, you will always be a prisoner. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be a prisoner, whether that's in my own head or physically. Basically, pleasing people is pointless. Because you're you're not responsible for how other people feel. You're responsible for how you feel and how you live your life. And you can kind of sort of, you can flip this a little bit. Always trying to please people isn't a selfless act. It's actually quite selfish. Because you're trying to control what people think of you when you try and please everyone. Think about that one. Are you actually being quite selfish when you think you're being selfless? Are you trying to please everyone? If you are, please, and I I implore you to do this, just try saying no every now and then. If someone asks you to do something and you don't want to do it, a very short word is available to you. And it's going to feel uncomfortable when you start saying no to people. But like with everything, it just gets better with practice and you don't have to just say now fuck off I ain't doing what you want me to I'm not coming to where you want me to just say alright I'm not going to be able to do that you don't have to offer an explanation you don't owe anyone an explanation it's the people pleaser in you that wants to explain to someone why you can't do something or give your excuses for it it's not something that you need to do and most people don't really require an excuse people don't want to hear excuses for the most part because that's when it gets a bit suspect um So yeah, try and sit with those uncomfortable feelings that come up when you start maybe saying no to people or setting boundaries and it will become easier. I promise you. I went to an event the other day and I left at nine o'clock when everyone started drinking. People are like, oh my God, why are you leaving? I'm like, well, because I want to. And that is purely because I've practiced saying no and telling people what I want to do and focusing more on what I want to do. Without being a totally selfish prick, I'm still fulfilling my values in terms of being in like having high levels of integrity and doing what I want to do without hurting anyone. Number six, they don't fear taking calculated risks. This one's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, they all are quite self self-explanatory, but when it comes to taking risk, just weigh up the pros and cons. 
think of Friends when Ross did that about uh, Rachel and Emily, did a pros and cons list. It didn't work out too well for him, but you can do it and no one's ever going to read it. doesn't matter what the decision is. Whether you're taking a resist, uh, a risk in a relationship or moving countries, just make a list, write it down, work out how you feel on paper. And that's that's all I've got for you on that one. Seven, they don't dwell on the past. There was an interesting story in this chapter about a mother of two children. One of her ch- children was called David and the other one was called James. David was the elder of the two and he died when he was 13. And his mother just collapsed. She couldn't handle the grief. And, I mean, fair play, it must be terribly difficult to lose a child but the right thing to do would be to focus on giving the best life to the child that you have left. She didn't do that. She constantly reminded James never to grow up and almost tried to deny him adulthood. That guy, James Barry, grew up to write The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, which we now know as Peter Pan and have seen Disney films of and loads of different remakes. And essentially that story is born out of his life, of his conflict between the innocence of childhood and being sheltered by his mother, and the conflict of adult responsibility. His mother had dwelled on the past. His mother couldn't handle the fact that her son had died, and she was left with the one son who was also going to grow old and be open to this tragic world that we live in, full of hardships and tragedies. She was dwelling on the past, and... I mean, as much as Peter Pan is a good book, I'm sure James Barry would have had a better life if his childhood was better because it is quite a dark twist when you think about it with Peter Pan, that he just never wanted to grow up, and it all stemmed from his brother dying when he was younger. It's quite a tough tough, tough story, really, when you think about it. Anyway, back to more dwelling on the past. You basically, in life, have to acknowledge that the past has already happened. And if it's negative and it's replaying over and over in your head, that's going to have negative implications on your life. Which you don't want. You want to enjoy your life. So things that have happened in the past, as much as you will probably never forget what happened in the past, you have to be able to change the way that you view those things. That's what's important when it comes to having a fulfilled life. So whatever has happened to you, whether it's tragic or... Whether it's even not that tragic, just look at it as a fact. It's not an emotion. Sure, some things are sad, and it is sad that they happened. But the thing has happened, and you you can't do anything about that now. I don't think anyone has come up with time travel. As of yet. I'm sure they will. Maybe they won't. That's too much to think about. But you can't change the past. What you are in control of... It's your current set of emotions and how you deal with things that come your way in the future. So focus on your attitude and looking at events as facts, not as emotions. Number eight, they don't make the same mistakes over and over. Honestly, repeated mistakes are ridiculous because I make them all the time and it's silly. Some of the chapters in this book literally jumped off the page and slapped me in the face. And it was unfortunate because... It made it quite tough to read. But if you do make a mistake, 
because making making mistakes is quite a natural thing in life. You just ask three questions. What went wrong? What could I have done better? And what could I do differently next time to prevent that repeating? It's three quite simple questions, but I don't think many people actually sit down, write that down and assess the situation properly. I think that is quite rare. And it is such a simple hack of just assessing what has gone wrong as opposed to being paralysed by the mistake and be like, oh my God, I'm terrible, starting telling yourself loads of difficult stories about yourself and who you are as a person and sort of just putting yourself down in your head. Just assess the situation, try and do your best to make sure that it doesn't happen next time. A lot of these things I'm talking about sound like it's awfully simplistic. Within the book, there is a lot of actionable advice on how to do it and how to implement it and real life examples from people she's had in therapy. It's just if I went through all of those, it would be an even longer and, I mean, maybe even more boring podcast episode, even though you probably don't find this boring because... I'm not finding it boring talking about it. And if you were, you obviously don't have to listen because we're all free people. Number nine, they don't resent other people's successes. That one, that one's true, right? If you are stable yourself, if you are happy with your life, I don't think you bother thinking about whether other people are deserving of success. I don't think you would waste much time thinking about whether Kanye West deserves to be a billionaire or Taylor Swift deserves to be a billionaire. Like, Why would that enter your mind? You've got your own life to worry about. But there are people that do it. And there are studies that show that as, as people, as humans, we actually take pleasure out of the hardships of individuals who are seen as more successful. A study was done in 2013 called Their Pain, Our Pleasure. And it just showed that people don't feel sorry for rich professionals going through something bad. And it even went as far to say that they experienced joy at the uh, at the detriment of those people, which is pretty fucked when you think about it. Like if you're if you're truly jealous of someone's success or you're resentful of someone's success, just check check in with yourself and be like, right, would I do a like for like life swap with that person? When I went to um, IFS, I was speaking with Doctor Mike. Shout out. Dr. Mike, and he said he was reading Jessica Simpson's book at the moment. I think this is quite a good example, right? Jessica Simpson, a lot of people would look at her life and be like, oh my God, she's got it so easy, she's a celebrity, she's got loads of money, she's really attractive, she's white, she's pretty. But he was telling me a story about in her book, she's going from shoot to shoot, she's getting about two hours sleep, having to go to a video shoot, and then she'd get to her mum's house sit down to rest, and then her mum would be waking her up to go to another shoot. She then started shouting at her mum, like, literally, leave me alone. I've been working non-stop for, like, 72 hours. Can I not just have a fucking nap? And because she was shouting at her mum, they called the police on her, and she got sectioned. I don't want that life. You can give me all the money in the world. I'd rather not, not be dealing with that. I need my sleep. I think a lot of these people who earn an obscene amount of money through their talents or their endeavours... I don't think their lives are actually that good. Or not as good as they would sort of make out. So if you do feel truly jealous of someone, think, would I would I actually want to swap my life for theirs? And I think most of the time, the answers are no. 
because no one in this world is free of all problems. Like, literally no one. So, what can you do to change that? Why don't you try feel genuinely pleased for people's successes? And I'm obviously not attacking any individual listener here. But, celebrities, why would we bother being resentful of their success? I think it was like Jay-Z, who said, like, more money, more problems. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a little drum beat in there. Um, and it may not have even been Jay-Z. But just because someone's rich, it doesn't mean they've got no problems, right? So why would we be jealous of that? I think it was Lucy Lord, actually, that said to me once, if you put all of your... If everyone put their problems in a pile, you'd probably take your own back. And that just puts uh, puts things into perspective, doesn't it? So support people, be kind, or just don't fucking think about it. Because resenting other people's success is pointless. I think uh, Nelson Mandela said resentment is like drinking poison and hoping your enemies die. It's just pointless. Number 10, we are four away from the end here. They don't give up after the first failure. That is very important. If you fail at something, just go again. Learn from that mistake. Have a bit of self-compassion. Just realise that everyone has shortcomings, including you, including I. And failure doesn't make you less of a like worthy person. That's a really simple chapter that I've made super even more simple. But it was actually quite a good chapter. They don't fear alone time. I love alone time, but I think I'm quite unique in that. And I'm learning to love it even more pretty much every day when I sit and meditate in the morning. And I've, I've spoken about this quote before by Blaise Pascal. All of man's miseries derive from not being able to sit quietly in a room alone. Think about the last time that you actually had no distractions. No music, no podcasts. Don't turn me off. And no phone, no computer, just maybe going for a walk on your own with your thoughts. I think if you're going for a walk at the moment, just pause the podcast and just try and do five minutes without touching your phone. Take your headphones out or whatever you're doing, as long as you're not doing anything really, really important. Just turn this off for a moment and try and just sit there for a minute and watch your thoughts because it's very likely that some uncomfortable feelings will come up for you And it just goes to show that alone time is actually quite difficult. But like with everything in life, it can be a skill. You can practice it and get better at it, which is great news, right? All you have to do is put a little bit of time in. So every day, dedicate 10 minutes to yourself where you have no distractions. Maybe journal, write stuff down or meditate or do something that just requires you to have no phone, no music, no podcast, nothing in the room. It'll be difficult. And I think it will open your eyes up to how much, how just how distracted we are in this day and age. It's crazy. So another part that was in, in that chapter that was quite interesting was about going on a date with yourself. And she says to schedule one date with yourself each month, whether that be going out for food on your own or going for a swim or something like that. Something where you just go with yourself, you sit with yourself with no distractions. Um... I don't currently do that. I think I do quite a lot of things on my own anyway, just because I enjoy it. But I am going to try and involve like a proper date with myself where I just go somewhere on my own. The last two. This one, I didn't even feel like I needed to read the chapter because I thought it wouldn't apply to me. 
And then I started to assess my own behavior because that's the good thing about books, right? Is they, they lead you to introspect and they lead you to think about what is going on in your own life and they lead you to think, oh, does this apply to me? And number 12 is they don't feel like the world owes them anything. I was like, I don't feel like that. And then I thought about it a little bit more. And I thought about the pandemic and all of the stuff that we've, we've had going on. I think a lot of people, me included, feel like we deserve a fucking break. But but we don't actually like deserve it, do we? The world doesn't owe us anything. And I think the quote at the start of that chapter said something like, the world doesn't owe you anything. It was here before you. But I, it's very easy to think when you've been dealt a certain amount of hardship that you're now owed some good time. But that's just not how it works. And there'll be people listening, and I think myself included, whose ego maybe needs to be reeled in every now and then, of where we just feel that maybe we're a bit superior to other people. And and you might hear me say that and think, oh my God, what a prick. But I, I genuinely believe we all think we're somewhat superior to others to a certain extent. Because we all choose to live our lives the way that we choose to. So we think that's the right way. So we think we're right. And for us to be right, other people must be wrong. Right? Are you still with me? I hope you are. Because otherwise I just sound like a massive prick. But basically, we all think the way that we live is the right way to do it. Otherwise, why would we live like that? So, I mean, it has nothing to do with people thinking that the world owes them anything, but it does come hand in hand with people thinking the world owes them something because the people who think the world owes them something will think that they are potentially superior to others. I've even lost myself there. (sighs) Basically, no one's special. And the rules apply to everyone. That was another thing. In the pandemic, I thought, well, I don't have to not go to the skate park. This was like last year. So I just climbed over the fence that they put up, thinking I was different to everyone else. I mean, they banned people from going to the skate park. But I went because I was like, well, I'll go mad if I can't go skate or swim or something like that. So I thought, well, I'll just bend the rules and jump over the fence and skate. There you go. I thought I was special, when in reality, I wasn't. I shouldn't have done that. But, I mean, it didn't hurt anyone, so what are you going to do? I mean, if anyone's thinking about telling the police, go for it, because I don't think they can do anything. But but if you do tell the police, I was obviously lying. Final thing is they don't expect immediate results. And I did a video about this the other day on Instagram, and I asked people, do you need to grow up? I think it is quite a childish thing to expect immediate results. We live in an age now where everything is instant. If you go online, you want next day shopping. Even now I live in London, you can get stuff delivered same day if you order on Amazon. I've been ordering so many things on the internet recently, I've had to ban myself from online shopping for all of September. And I'm thinking of potentially extending that to the end of the year because I need to get some self-control back. And I think quite a good way of doing that is just reeling it in for a while. There was a study done by a guy called Ramesh. uh, What was his name? Sintar. Sintar. 
Ramesh S, basically. I can't say his last name. And it showed that people's patience when it comes to watching videos online is literally as low as two seconds when it comes to media content. So if a video doesn't load, within two seconds, you're clicking off it. You're bored. Two seconds is an attention span. That is fucking pathetic. We are so impatient. Myself included. I'm not, like, attacking anyone here. But this world is crazy. Two seconds for an attention span. It's fucking dreadful. And that is why, when you sit down to read a book, you find it really difficult. Unless it's a really good novel. They're obviously way more, like, easier to get into because you're going through a story. It's, it's a genuine distraction. But if you're learning something, if you're reading a non-fiction book that doesn't sort of set your world on on fire and, and spark your interest, you'll be reading it for, like, two or three minutes. You'll be like, right, I need to check my phone. I need to check my phone. I need to check my phone. It's something everyone has to work on. And luckily for everyone, your attention span is like a muscle. So if you train it, it will become stronger and it will be better for you. So when it comes to reading books, when you get bored, even if it's five minutes in, just push for another two minutes or push for another five pages and just keep pushing that because I think it's quite a worrying state of the world that our attention spans are so bad. I don't I don't think we're heading in a good direction with that. But all you can do essentially is take responsibility yourself and focus on sort of strengthening your attention span. As I said that, I was looking out the window and got distracted. How ironic. It just goes to show how dire the situation is. I see a squirrel and I'm like, oh, squirrel, like a dog. Pathetic. But not obviously to be mean to myself. So, yeah, they don't expect immediate results. I think it's quite a childish thing to do. Most good things in life take dedicated practice. I think it's Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers says that it's 10,000 hours of dedicated practice to become a master at something. Now, you don't need to be a master at anything, but it does set the tone quite nicely for how much time you need to put into something to be good at it. Whether that's a hobby or whether that is making your attention span stronger or just becoming a generally smarter human being through reading books, like it's going to take time. The results now, like, they might not show for five years, but in five years, you'll be a lot smarter and you'll be grateful that you put the time in. So just be wary of the quick fix. It's not always realistic. So, like, another... I mean, let me add to this, in a way, because people usually expect immediate results when it comes to something. They're doing, like, an endeavour, like, meditating, journaling, the gym, reading, developing a skill... To combat giving up, make it enjoyable and give yourself rewards along the way. Because you might not see tangible rewards or improvement for a very long time from when you start the endeavour of whatever it is you're getting into. So give yourself little rewards. Just like, right, when I go to the gym for a whole month, doing it four days a week, I'm going to reward myself with, insert, something that you enjoy, right? It's super, super important because... Even if you don't hit your goals, or when you don't hit your goals at the point that you expect to, you might be disheartened. But at least then you might have had something that you enjoy, say a Nando's, or you bought yourself something that you like. Expecting immediate results and not getting them fucking hurts, right? And we all fall prey to it. And that is the end of 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. Although I have gone through all 13 of those things, I'm a flawed individual. 
I'm not hyper intelligent enough to intertwine stories. I haven't got the life experience that Amy Marin has. And this book is really, really good. And I think if you are looking to build your mental resilience and your mental strength and to just become someone who just faces up to shit in life, get the book, read the book. There is going to be a link in the description for you to purchase the book um, from somewhere. But if not, just buy it from wherever you want. Bookshops are open now. Get yourself down to a local bookshop, see if they've got it in stock. And if not, at least you've had a nice day out. And going in bookshops is great. I just want to shout out to actual local bookshops. They are good and they're nice to go to. But that's it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I enjoy talking. That's 36 minutes though. That was quite a long time for me to go through 13 things. So apologies. If you ever feel that I'm taking too long to talk about things, there are options on Apple and Spotify and I'm sure Google to speed up the podcast. I don't feel I speak that fast, but you can speed my voice up, which means you can get on with your day a little bit quicker or you can get through a podcast a little bit quicker so you can listen to some of my older ones. Oh my God, what a good idea. Right, you're absolute legends. Please share this. If you have enjoyed it, please send it to someone who you think it would be helpful for. If you need anything from myself, please send me an email. I haven't been able to do the book doctor in the last couple of episodes because no one is sending me voice notes. I am back and I need you to participate so I can send you some free stuff and you get a chance to be featured in the episode. So send me a voice note of 30 seconds to one minute to a need to read dot podcast at gmail.com and let's chat. I'll recommend you a book. Just say what your problem is and I'll get a book to you and a book bag and you'll be featured in an episode. But that's it from me. You're all absolute legends. All of the relevant links for everything are in the description of the episode. Love you, bye. <laughs>